Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast episode contains descriptions of murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's Saturday the 3rd of December 1892, and at the Exhibition Building in Prince Alfred Park in Sydney, a dark prediction of death and disaster is about to be made. Not that you'd predict such a prediction at this time and place. That's because it's a sunny scene of fun and colour. This is the opening day of the German Fair, which celebrates the Teutonic people and culture. The gathered crowds are loving the brass bands, the merry-go-round, the Punch and Judy pantomime, the shooting gallery and other sideshow entertainments. But the most striking attractions are the 14 stalls inside the exhibition building. Each of these bears the name of a German city. So Berlin, with its heraldry of mighty eagle and ferocious black bear, impresses upon everyone the power and glory of the unified German Reich. With Christmas just a few weeks away, Frankfurt offers a grand display of German gingerbread in the shape of St. Nicholas. Dresden offers a splendid array of dolls, Baden showcases charming traditional toys and fairgoers clamour around Cologne to try their luck on the spinning prize wheel. Each of these stalls is attended by local women dressed in colourful peasant costumes. Among them is a tall, slender and raven-haired beauty in her mid-twenties. Well known in Sydney society, she has great talent as a pianist and as a musical composer. 
goodness, even her name brings to mind grace, beauty and harmony. May Summerbell. And today, on this bell of a summer's day, Miss Annie May Summerbell, to give her her full name and title, is hard to miss, just as she will be over the next few days of the fair. That's because May isn't wearing traditional German garb. Instead, she's presenting herself as a Romany soothsayer. Turban, silver trinkets, crystal ball, that sort of thing. Cross her palm with a penny and May will read your palm. Divine the lines, forecast your fortunes. It's all a bit of fun and to raise funds for German charities. But during the fair, as the story will soon appear in the newspapers, May Summerbell's prognostications take a decidedly sinister turn. This happens when she has a customer named Letitia Francis Kavanagh. Fanny, as she's known, is also in her mid-twenties and she lives locally in Surrey Hills. When May takes Fanny's hand, May tells her that she sees sudden and early death. Fanny is absolutely and understandably horrified. Realising what she's done, May the soothsayer tries to soothe Fanny. Look, she says, holding out her own hand. My palm's lines are just like yours. The lines also offer disastrous indications for me. This strange intense encounter does have a witness, who will be described in the newspapers as a well-known lady journalist. This respected writer chides both Fanny and May for indulging in such fortune-telling foolishness. Seeing Fanny is still ruffled, the woman journalist reassures her this way. If Fanny's hand lines are like May's, then she has absolutely nothing to worry about. That's because May Summerbell lives a charmed life. The lady journalist says May is so lucky she'd draw a squatter out of a lottery. What she means by this is that May's the sort of girl who could fluke the ultimate prize for a woman of her class and her time, that is, a rich young husband. It's true, May does live a fortunate life. A student of the renowned musical teacher Madame Kellerman, May has already published a hit song. And, as things will turn out, within a few months she will be engaged to the son of a wealthy pastoralist. Beautiful, talented, lucky in love, May Summerbell has it all. Maybe even a touch of the second sight. That's because, whether made in silliness or in seriousness, May's palmistry prediction is right. Dead right. Sudden and early death does loom for Fanny Kavanagh. Yet that very same sudden and early death is also to shatter May Summerbell's seemingly perfect life. While they're strangers now, united only by this strange incident at the German fair, in less than a year their fates will be again intertwined. Intertwined in a bloody catastrophe enacted with a swinging axe in a darkened branch of the Citibank of Sydney. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Citibank Axe Murders. Part two will be released soon, but you can hear how the story turns out right now if you're a Patreon or Apple supporter. Being a supporter costs as little as a cup of coffee a month, 
and it gives you early ad-free access to all episodes. And you'll also get a show shout-out and bonus episodes. So a big thank you to Timothy Thornton and Bill Saunders, who've recently become Patreon supporters. Remember, if you've become an Apple supporter and you'd like a shout-out, drop me a line at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that email address to send me a question for the upcoming David Hunt Book Club episode. So if you'd like to know something about David Hunt's research and writing process or his GERT trilogy, send a question to that email address or record your question as a voice message via speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Apple, Patreon and Speakpipe links are also in your show notes. Although it happened nearly a century ago, before most people now living were born, we nevertheless have a strong cultural memory of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Our parents, grandparents or great-grandparents might have even told us about their experiences. At the very least, it's a world we're familiar with from novels like Kylie Tennant's The Battlers, from haunting photographs and newsreel footage, and from subsequent movies and television shows that depicted the hardships. But an earlier disaster in Australian and global economic history is barely known. This is the Depression of the early 1890s. In the preceding decade, Australia had experienced a massive property boom, and this had been fuelled by wild speculation. In this period, banks handed out loans left, right and centre. When the property market tanked, there was no backup and there were no bailouts. Bankruptcies and business failures followed. As the economy went into freefall, banks closed their doors across the colonies, and people were thrown into poverty and into desperation. This was the decade before Federation, so there was no central government and no coordinated economic policy or relief measures. How bad was it? My friend Dr Peter Doherty, who has taught economics at the University of Technology in Sydney for more than 20 years, assures me that the Depression of the 1890s was actually far worse than the Great Depression of 40 years later. It's mostly forgotten now because of how long ago it took place. Everyone who experienced it has long since died. Also, the Depression of the early 1890s wrought its destruction before there was a popular culture to enshrine it in moving pictures, recorded stories and songs, and locally published popular novels. Despite its obscurity for us, its effects were very real for many Australians, including those we're going to hear about in this episode. In 1893, John Phillips, known as Jack, was a valued veteran officer of the Citibank of Sydney. He was 33 years old and he'd worked for this institution for half of his life. The Citibank of Sydney had been founded in 1863 and it had gone from strength to strength. When the economic storm of the 1890s smashed many of its competitors, Citibank was sound and sturdy enough to keep its branches open and its workforce employed. Jack Phillips had a job when many men did not, but what seemed like good fortune was anything but. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Jack Phillips was born in July 1860 in Kiama on the New South Wales south coast. He was the first child born to Thomas and Christina Phillips. 
Despite being an ordinary Irish immigrant farmer who lived in a quiet part of the country, Thomas Phillips was destined to feature twice in colonial newspapers. The first time was in January 1861, when his son Jack was just six months old. Thomas was called to sit on the jury at the inquest into the murder of a ten-week-old baby. This tiny victim had been chopped to pieces with a reaping hook by her deranged auntie. The grisly remains were on display during the inquest at a local hotel, as the grieving mother testified about how her sister had slaughtered the child and declared, I am the butcher. It was the stuff of nightmares, and it had to be incredibly disturbing for all the jurors, but especially so for Thomas Phillips as a new father. We don't know if he later told his son Jack about his experiences on that jury. Perhaps Thomas kept it from him to spare the boy's feelings. But the next time Thomas Phillips' name was in the newspapers, Jack would know all about it because he'd also been central to the tragic event in question. On the first Monday of January 1875, Thomas and Jack went fishing. By then Jack was 14. He'd grown into a fine young lad, known for his good conduct, modest character and his attention to his school and domestic duties. Around 10 in the morning, Thomas and Jack were at Bombo Point, a mile and a half north of Kiama. Here, farmland ended in bluffs above the dark sea. Father and son settled on a spot that wasn't too high up, just four or five feet above the waves. They were swinging their lead-weighted lines around their heads to send their baited hooks far out from shore. Jack would say he believed that as his dad was doing this, he'd miscalculated and smack, his heavy sinker had struck him hard in the skull. The impact was enough that Thomas overbalanced and fell from the little cliff. Jack grabbed for his dad, but his fingers closed only around his father's hat. Thomas Phillips plunged into the dark waters below, and he didn't resurface. Young Jack was frantic, but he didn't jump in. Instead, he ran and he raised the alarm. The district's police, sailors and local farmers all sprang into action. But despite their best efforts, which included dragging the waters, no trace of Thomas was ever found. An Associated Press reporter helpfully explained, quote, The place abounds with sharks. This tragedy made news all across the colonies. Young Jack was haunted by his father's death, and no doubt he replayed those terrible moments over and over. If he'd acted a split second sooner, could he have gotten a hold of his father and saved him? If he'd been bolder, could he have dived into the water and rescued his dad? Of course, weighing against these what-ifs were sombre realities. It's likely Thomas had been stunned or knocked out by the self-inflicted blow. He may have hit his head on a rock when he hit the water. So Jack's dad may have been unconscious or even dead when he disappeared beneath the waves. It'd certainly explain why he didn't resurface and try to save himself. If Jack had been able to get into the water, his father may have already been dead. At the very least, he would have been dead weight. If Jack had been able to grab him, there was no way back up the bluff, and the waves were treacherous. So, had Jack dived in, he likely would have been dashed against the rocks and also ended up as shark food. Survivor's guilt was to be expected, but Jack might have been suffering more than that. Much later, 
a man who'd known him at this time would tell a story to the barrier miner at Broken Hill. And what he said was reported this way, quote, It was believed that the lad, in twirling a line around his head, preparatory to casting it into the sea, struck his father on the skull with the leaden sinker. He made a grab at his father as the latter was falling and caught his hat. The fatality had a great effect on the lad. Had Jack accidentally killed his own father? Whatever had happened at Bombo Point, Jack had to live with it. But it would seem he never fully got over the tragedy. Jack would be described as having grown into a timid man who had a bad case of the nerves. So what would he do if he ever faced another split-second life-or-death moment? especially one that involved himself and the protection of a family member. Sadly, in this case, time was to tell. But before it did, Bombo Point, site of the tragedy, would transform the fortunes and landscapes of both Kayama and Sydney. Bombo Point was soon quarried for its basalt and blue metal. These materials shipped to Sydney and used respectively in the construction of the city's steam tramways and its roadways. As a result, Kayama's economy boomed. In those good times, people needed banks they could trust, and banks needed trustworthy young men like Jack Phillips. Jack started working at the City Bank of Sydney's Kayama branch in June of 1877. He was then a month shy of his 17th birthday. Jack lived a quiet life as a civic-minded teetotaler. After nearly five years at the Kayama branch, Jack's qualities and talents saw him promoted to the Citibank's headquarters in Sydney. In January 1882, Jack was farewelled at a Kayama dinner attended by three dozen friends and colleagues. There were plenty of speeches and toasts that praised the young man's personal and professional qualities. The manager of the Citibank's Kayama branch said that he'd never worked with a fellow officer of such an amiable and agreeable disposition as Jack Phillips. Reading between the lines of that speech, which was reported in detail in the local newspapers, was to get the impression that Jack was a chap who'd go along to get along. This idea was reinforced when Justice of the Peace Mr James Colley got up to speak. Telling the gathering that he'd known Jack since he was a boy, Mr. Colley said he'd like to offer the lad just one word of advice. And that word was no. Jack, Mr. Colley said, had to learn how to say no. He had to know when to say no emphatically, and learning to do so required courage and manliness. Mr. Colley seemed to recognise that this young man for all of his great qualities, lacked the ability to stand up for himself. At the Sydney head office, Jack Phillips got more responsibility. He worked as an assistant to the Citibank's secretary and for a time he had charge of the shareholders list. Jack was then transferred to the Oxford Street branch in Paddington, where he worked as an accountant. During the mid to late 1880s, Jack was briefly posted out to the country, to Carcor, 150 miles west of Sydney, past Bathurst. Sheltered in a valley, beside the burbling Bella River, Carcor had first been colonised by white people in 1821, and the town had briefly boomed during the gold rush of the 1850s. Since then, Carcor had settled into a placid place that was as pretty as a picture. Around this time, the Sydney Mail would describe it this way, quote, 
Karkor is a pleasant little town lying at the foot of the hills in the Western District and has ever been regarded as one of the most comfortable settlements in a particularly fortunate district. There is a great abundance of cultivation and there are several well-to-do pastoralists in the vicinity of the town, which has always enjoyed the reputation as being one of the quietest and most law-abiding in the colony. While it was quiet and peaceful, Karkor did have at least one lawless claim to fame. This event, which had involved brave bank employees, had made Australian criminal history. In 1863, bold bushranger Ben Hall and his gang had been operating in the area. In July of that year, two of these outlaws, John Gilbert and John O'Mealy, stuck up the Carcor branch of the commercial bank. This was the first attempt at a daylight bank robbery in the Australian colonies. But it didn't go well for the bad guys. The bank's plucky manager and a brave teller refused to play along and thwarted the gun-toting robbers who were forced to beat a hasty, empty-handed retreat. Jack Phillips's temporary car core posting was far less exciting. He was there as an accountant. The days of the bushrangers were long gone. Car Corps had earned its placid reputation, and Jack took a shine to the little town. Yet his Citibank superiors soon shuffled him back to Sydney. It was there in August 1887 that Jack married 23-year-old Annie Stoddart. Annie had older siblings, but she was closest to her younger sister, Susan, then about 17. Annie and Susan were also very close to Fanny Kavanagh, then around 18. Fanny's mother had been childhood friends with their mother, so the girls had all grown up together. Jack and Annie had their first child in May 1891, a baby daughter they named Gladys. Around this time, Jack was posted to Cobargo, so the young family packed up for that south coast town. After serving there for about a year, Jack was next given a choice of positions. He and Annie and the baby could return to Sydney, where he'd take up a role at the Castlereagh Street branch or he could go back to Karkor, where he'd take over as branch manager. Jack chose to go to Karkor. Better, perhaps, to be a big fish in a small pond. Managerial experience, even if it was in a backwater like Karkor, was an important rung on the career ladder. But other factors would have played into his decision. He knew Karkor, he knew it was a nice little place, and he liked the people. He was also making his decision in 1892, when the banking crisis and economic collapse was causing a lot of misery, particularly in the cities around the colonies. So why not ride out the tough times in a pretty little village where nothing much happened? And as a bonus, the Karkor posting included use of the fine managerial residence that was attached to the Citibank building there. John and Annie moved to the town around September 1892. She soon fell pregnant again, and their second child, daughter Dorothy, would be born in the middle of the next year. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Citibank building was an attractive brick edifice. Built into the slope on the western side of Bella Beulah Street, Carcor's main thoroughfare. The bank's offices occupied one side of the ground floor. The other part was given over to the private residence. A hallway entrance led into a dining room and upstairs to the first floor bedrooms. The rear downstairs section of the building held the kitchen and quarters for the servant girl, Agnes McVicker, who was to help Annie with the children and the domestic chores. Jack and Annie's closest neighbour lived next door. This was Joseph Derwin, the Citibank's accountant and thus Jack's right-hand man. Behind Jack and Annie lived Reverend Mr Clark, who kept his horses in a stable adjoining their backyard. Everything in Carcor was merely a stone's throw from Jack and Annie's front door. A minute up the hill and they'd be at St Paul's Anglican Church with its tower and steeple. A hop, skip and a jump down Bella Beulah Street and they'd be at the Post and Telegraph Office, the Royal Hotel or the fine terraces of the Great Western Warehouse. On the corner, opposite the river, where the main street met Isley Street, stood Carcor's most impressive building, the Courthouse. This Italianate beauty, complete with clock tower, was the work of colonial architect James Barnett, who'd also designed many of Sydney's most impressive buildings. And beside the courthouse was Carcor's police station and its lock-up. Carcor was a fine town, and 33-year-old Jack Phillips was a fine man about town. He was important because he handled many of the town's banking services. People relied on him but Jack's job also made him the bearer of bad news during these times of economic trouble. He was the man who had to chase debts and had to foreclose on assets if they couldn't be paid. This, of course, could lead to disappointment and disgruntlement. But Jack Phillips was just doing his job. Most folks recognised this and he was popular. Jack was regarded as civic-minded and as a pillar of the community. Thus, Jack was elected as treasurer of the Carcor Hospital and as treasurer of the town's Agricultural, Horticultural and Pastoral Association. But then, only a year after they'd arrived and settled in, Jack's Citibank bosses did another management reshuffle. This one was a bit like musical chairs. See, the manager's job over at Bathurst had become vacant, so it was to be filled by the manager from Kiama. The Kiama job would then be taken by the present manager from Young. This was where Jack came in. He was now to go to Young to be the manager there. It was a bother to have to relocate yet again. But taking the job at Young was another step up the seniority ladder. Everything was settled. At this time, Jack and Annie's little daughter Gladys was staying in Sydney with Annie's mum. During this holiday, Gladys had spent a lot of time with her aunt Susan and with Susan's best friend, Fanny Kavanagh. The little girl had become particularly close to Fanny. Susan and Fanny had planned to bring Gladys back to Jack and Annie at their new place in Young. 
then a health hiccup complicated that game of musical chairs even more. See, the wife of the outgoing manager at Young had taken ill, and she'd been told by her doctor that she'd need to stay in bed for a month or so. So she'd have to remain in the Citibank residence in Young, even though her husband was about to take up his new position in Kayama. The knock-on effect was that Jack would still move to Young and take up the manager's role, but he'd stay in a hotel temporarily. Annie and the children would remain in the Carcor Citibank residence until they could join him. Incoming Carcor branch manager, Mr. Healy, would then temporarily stay in a Carcor hotel. It was all a bit of a palaver, but this was how the Citibank wanted things done. Jack was now scheduled to leave for Young on Saturday, the 23rd of September, 1893. Annie had advised Susan and Fanny about this change of plans. But she, Annie, also had an idea. Why didn't Susan and Fanny come up to Carcourt to keep her company? They could bring Gladys with them. Then they could all go to Young. Susan liked the idea. Fanny wasn't so keen. Just as her recent encounter with May Summerbell at the German fair was soon to make the newspapers, it would also be widely reported that Fanny Kavanagh had had a bad feeling, a presentiment, about going to Carcor. Yet her father, to whom she was exceptionally close, said that she should go, that it would be good for her. Fanny had been hearing such things all of her life. As a child, she'd been terribly sick with rheumatic fever. Fanny had then, and later, been sent to the Blue Mountains to take the air for her health. Lately, Fanny had been unwell again, and her doctor agreed with her father. Carcor, at nearly 2,500 feet above sea level, had good air, and it would help her get better. So Fanny agreed. Susan and Fanny planned to get the train west on the morning of Saturday the 23rd of September. This service would get them to nearby Blaney around about 7 o'clock that night. In order to pick them up and to see Gladys, Jack Phillips delayed his departure for Young until Monday morning. Now everything really was settled. On the Thursday night, the 21st of September, Jack's farewell dinner was held at Carcor's Victoria Hotel. Forty of the town's most prominent citizens gathered to toast the man they'd come to regard as a friend. The mayor chaired the celebration and read from a beautifully illuminated and framed address that was presented as a goodbye gift to Jack. The parchment read, quote, Dear Sir, it is with feelings of regret we have heard that your connection with us is to be severed by your removal to Young. Those of us who had business transactions with you must acknowledge your unvarying courtesy, your willingness to oblige, yet at the same time your anxiety to advance the interests of the institution you represent. During your residence here, you have, by your uprightness, your genial presence and gentlemanly bearing, endeared yourself to all with whom you came in contact, wishing you and Mrs. Phillips long life, happiness and prosperity." The townsmen gave him another parting gift, a silver fruit stand, and other speakers agreed that Carcor was indeed losing one of its best and most conscientious citizens. A decade earlier, at his Kayama farewell, Jack had only been in his early twenties, and that night he delivered what was reported to be a halting and awkward response. Now, 
years and experience had made him a little more at ease. In his reply, Jack said that Karkor's people had become his best friends, and the sadness he felt at leaving them was too great to put into words. Gazing at the framed address and at the silver fruit stand, Jack told them that these gifts would become heirlooms in his family, and that they would always bring him and his wife Annie long and sweet remembrances of their time in Karkor. Two days later, Saturday, the 23rd of September, after weeks of cold and wet weather, spring had finally sprung, and it was beautiful and warm. Jack had by then done the handover to incoming manager Mr. Healy, and this included giving him the keys to the bank and to its safe. But there were still things for Jack to finish up that day. This included finalising the sale of a Carcor butcher shop's assets. It was an unpleasant task that had been made necessary by the financial recklessness of the business's young owner. This chap, Bertie Glasson, was the son of a wealthy local family. Yet he'd made a mess of his own affairs. Jack had tried to get Bertie to pay his debts. It had been to no avail. Bertie hadn't taken responsibility. In fact, he wasn't even around Carcor for the final act of his failure. He was instead holed up in Sydney at the Hotel Metropole with the young woman he'd only recently married, May Summerbell, well known for her beauty and for her musical talents. Yet what no one knew, not even May, was that Bertie was that day headed back to Carcor. He'd gotten the train that morning from Redfern Station and was seated in the same carriage as Susan Stoddart, Fanny Kavanagh and little Gladys Phillips. Just after 7 o'clock that night, the steam locomotive chugged into Blaney Station, which was 10 miles or so northeast of Carcor. Jack had come with the Reverend Mr. Clark in the preacher's two-horse carriage to pick up Susan, Fanny and Gladys. They were back at the Citibank residence in Carcor by around 10 that night. The Reverend said his goodnights and went back to his place to stable his horses. Jack Annie, Susan, Fanny, and next-door neighbour, accountant Joseph Derwin, enjoyed a late supper. It was a happy affair, and even little Gladys was allowed to stay up past her usual bedtime. It had been a long day for everyone. At 11.30, Fanny said goodnight. She retired to the upstairs children's bedroom, taking Gladys with her. Mr Derwin said his goodbyes next. John, Annie and Susan all went upstairs around quarter to twelve. Husband and wife went to their bedroom with baby Dorothy. Susan went to join Fanny and Gladys. Baby Dorothy was restless and this kept John and Annie awake for a while. Finally, the little ones settled. The Citibank building was quiet and dark. Outside, the moon was nearly full and shining bright directly overhead. At around two in the morning, Annie Phillips woke up. She could hear sounds, noises in the house, like someone climbing the stairs from the basement to the ground floor. Through the open bedroom door, she could see candle glow. Someone was moving around below in the dining room. Jack, she said, wake up. He did. Jack heard and saw what Annie did. He grabbed the revolver that the bank had issued to him, 
While it had been 30 years since Ben Hall had roamed these parts, Jack's Citibank bosses still wanted their car core manager to be able to protect himself, his family, and their cash. The revolver was loaded. Five bullets in five chambers. Jack and Annie got out of bed. Husband and wife went down the stairs together. He, with the revolver extended, she gripping his arm. They went into the dining room, where a candle was burning. Annie picked it up. That's when she saw the man, standing behind one of the dining room doors, his face covered with a black mask. He was holding an axe. Annie barely had time to register the menace before the masked man blurred into motion. He knocked the candle from her hand and, as it sputtered against the floor, he swung the axe, the blade hitting Jack. Jack went down, dragging Annie to the floor with him. She scrambled away. Jack and the burglar fought in the shadows. Annie screamed at her husband. Why don't you use the revolver? Give me the pistol. If you can't shoot him, I will. Annie attacked the man. He threw her off, but not before she pulled off his mask. Annie staggered away into the hall and screamed up the stairs to Susan and Fanny. My baby, she said. Murder. Someone's killing Jack. Help. Behind Annie, she heard a terrible thud, thud, thud. Annie's mind was on her children. She had to save them. She stumbled up the stairs in the dark into her bedroom and lit a candle. Dorothy was gone. But he, the monster, had come in behind her. Annie whirled as the man brought his axe down. The blade hit her in the face, splitting one cheek from her chin to her ear, cutting so deep it sliced her tongue in half. With the blade embedded in her face, Annie fought her attacker as he struggled to prise the axe free so he could hit her again. As he yanked it from her face, Annie fell back just as Susan ran into the bedroom. She nearly fainted at the sight of her sister and the axe-wielding fiend who was ready to strike again. Susan said, no, stop, please. Don't you have a wife and children? Spare us. Money, the man demanded. I must have money. I must have money. Annie managed to say that she'd do whatever he wanted. But first, she had to know. My Jack, is he dead? No, the axe man said. He's just stunned. He'll be all right. The man demanded the keys to the bank safe. Annie told him that whatever keys Jack had were in his trousers and they were hanging up. The man went to the pants and helped himself to the keys and to a small amount of cash. He went downstairs, leaving the terrified women. Where were the children? When Susan had heard the sounds of the attack and Annie screaming, she'd grabbed baby Dorothy and had hidden her in the other bedroom. Fanny had snatched up Gladys and had run for safety, so the little girl should be all right. Servant girl Agnes McVicker came into the room. She was in shock, but she was unhurt. Everyone was alive. That was what mattered. The attacker stalked back into the bedroom. He was furious and he swore at Annie and Susan. These are the wrong keys, he told them. They're no good for the safe. Through her dazed state, Annie remembered... Jack had given the keys to the safe to his successor, Mr. Healy. She explained this. My husband, she said, is to leave for Young on Monday morning. We don't have the keys for the safe here. Where is this Mr. Healy? The man demanded. Staying in one of the hotels in town, she said. Susan chimed in saying she didn't know which one. She'd only arrived on the train last night. 
like the Kharkor bank raid made by members of Ben Hall's gang 30 years ago, all of this had been for nothing. The Axeman said he was going to leave. And he was going to leave them alive, but whether they stayed that way was their choice. Don't scream or make any noise, he said. If any of you do, or if any of you leave this room, I'll come back and I'll shoot you. Then he was gone in the dark. The terrified women cowered. Even in Annie's dazed, terrified and bloodied state, she was dimly aware of something that was as far beyond her comprehension as what had just happened. When she'd clawed off the man's mask, she'd recognised him. She knew him. It had been Bertie Glasson. After a few minutes, she mustered the courage to call into the darkness. Are you gone? There was no response. The maniac seemed to have left. But what he'd left in his wake would shock colonial Australia from coast to coast. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Citibank Axe Murders. The second and final part will be on general release pretty soon. But if you'd like to hear it right now, you can do so by becoming a Patreon or Apple supporter. Links are in your show notes, and you can get a free trial, which will give you access to part two, along with access to a whole bunch of bonus episodes. If you choose not to continue, it's easy to cancel and you won't pay a cent. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.